Welcome to the Bookstock Podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on March 2nd, 2018. Shannon from the Walt Branch Library discusses recent nonfiction she has read. Well, they're kind of just a hodgepodge. I'll start with the the first one I actually had on my list last time and I never got to it, so I thought I'd start with it. Um, it is an audiobook only, so if you don't like to listen to books, this is one you'll obviously have to skip. Um, it's called Chasing Space. It's an interesting story because he was a pro football player who turned into a, who then went into um, become a NASA astronaut. My problem with this book is that I don't know if he did not have anyone who helped him write it because he is not a writer. Uh And the fact that the storyline kind of skips and hops around a lot. And the last section of the book is I don't think he knew how to kind of close down the story. So a lot of it is like I met this famous person and then I met this famous person and then I did this famous thing. And so a lot of the end of it is like talking about the steps leading up to um, hidden figures getting made and meeting the women that were involved in that and meeting Pharrell. And while that is fascinating, all he basically says is like, I met these people. Well, that's great. I mean, good for you, I guess. But the the other problem is, is that the story takes off, starts with him getting into the big diving pool that NASA has to train their astronauts how to move in their suits in space Mm -hmm. because these are big clunky suits and so he is submerging this pool is huge it's hundreds of feet deep so that they can actually put a mock-up of the International Space Station totally submerged in the water so you can imagine how big this pool is and how deep it is so he's starting to descend and he does not have a he describes it as like a tube to blow out his ears as he's descending and he knows he needs it from all of his other diving experiences he realizes he doesn't have it in his helmet so instead of telling command that he needs to go back up and get this tube he decides to proceed and then blows both eardrums out to the point where he loses hearing for several weeks then he then this is where I almost stopped reading because then he starts blaming everyone under the sun but himself well the guy who put my suit together didn't put the tube in there the guy in command didn't remind me I'm like dude you saw it you knew you needed it and at no point did you say I gotta go back up I gotta get this tube why wasn't that reason to get him out because you'd surely have to be smarter than that as an astronaut. You would think. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking. You, you wonder if it was arrogance and stubbornness that drove that? I don't know. And like I said, it, I, I was so infuriated yeah, by his, like, inability to blame himself for the position he got himself in that I almost stopped reading it. There's another scene in the book that... I feel that there was probably more to the story than he was letting on, but I feel that the more to the story probably was not in his favor. Um, He goes on to talk about how he was at a university and he had a roommate and his roommate was taking the same class he was taking. However, he was taking it in the morning and the roommate was taking it in the afternoon. And the roommate came or he came back to the classroom 
And um, his roommate said, oh, how'd the test go? Or how'd the exam go? And he goes, oh, it was hard. Or, oh, there were, you know, some things I didn't get. Well, then the next day he got a failing grade in the class because they claimed that he violated the code of ethics of the school by divulging information on an exam. I can tell you right now, I would not have gotten through the university if that actually was enforced. <laughs> because you always talk about with your friends, how yeah. the exam go? What'd you think? Was it hard? Did you do this? Did you answer this? So to me, that whole story was baffling. He doesn't spend a lot of time um, talking about the actual incident. He talks about all the repercussions from it. Does he name the school? He does name a school, and I'm sorry, I cannot remember what it was. It was one of the first books I read. And he doesn't, he believes that the reason why he was failed in that class was because their football team, which was like a Division two school, did not win a game or some <laughs> asinine thing like that. And to me, to me, the story he tells is so holy that I'm just like there has to be more to this story I cannot believe you saying that you thought a test was difficult to a classmate who then went and told a professor would instigate you failing a class mm -hmm. almost losing your scholarship getting kicked out of the university I mean they went through a whole disciplinary case with him and he I didn't know how he ever got into the astronaut program. Well, here's the thing. He got in. He never got to space because oh, okay. he blew his eardrums. Yeah. So he, he still got in the program. He did get in the program. Well, he's arrogant, and most astronauts are never arrogant because they don't succeed well with their, co their fellow astronauts. I mean, that's one of the things that the other two books I will talk about talk about. You have to get along with everyone else. So I, I don't know how this gentleman got it. And like I said, I think it would have been a better book if he had told his story to a, a, someone else and they had written it. Mm -hmm. Yes, or just another author thought this would be an interesting story. He wasn't that good at that either. What was Division two? Like I said, the story is so holy that it just, uh, it, you know, that's yeah, there was, there was more to this than he was telling. And I have a feeling that what was more to the story was not going to make him look great. So well, Melvin, this jury says you're guilty. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and we're usually pretty tall. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've made it my goal to finish a book despite hating it, which I'm not sure I'm doing well at because I end up hating them more because I want to stop reading them, and I don't. So sometimes I'm like, I should just stop because I hate this book so much, and so. Um, I don't think you're recommending it. No, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, it's not worth it to finish no. it. Just come and just, I got to this point, and it just okay. wasn't worth going yeah. on. It's okay. Yeah. Um, the next one, unfortunately, I cannot get a hold of a copy of the libraries, um, so you'll have to fend for yourself on the list. I brought my own copy, and you cannot take it with you. Um, I, I, I recommend this book highly. I gave it to every person who loves books as a Christmas gift this year. Endurance by Kelly Scott. If you don't know who he Scott is, Kelly. Scott Kelly, sorry. He is the astronaut who spent a year in space at the International Space Station. His brother, Mark, is also an astronaut. Um, yes, he is married to Gabby. I really like this book because Kelly is not afraid. Like a lot of sometimes the astronaut books you read, they're all like 
subhumanly talented and yeah. beautiful and you know they can do everything and just the world is open and he talks about how he hated school and he hated everything like him and his <laughs> I feel so bad for his parents because he would talk about how him and Mark would be going to get stitches at the hospital mm. while taking stitches out from the mm. previous accident. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. It sounds yeah. like it was heckle and jekyll a lot of the time. And they talked about how they were explorers. And so at age two, they figured out how to climb out of their crib. And since they were together, one would stand on the other's shoulders, and then they opened the front door and walked outside and were down the street before anyone knew what was happening. And so he talks a lot about how he was never interested in school, and school was the furthest thing from his mind, and it was so boring to him, and he never did well in it. And both him and his brother never did well. And then... Mark seemed to pull his act together quicker than Scott did. Um, Scott barely got passable grades to get into the university, and he was just kind of spinning his wheels there. And then, in a happen chance through the bookstore, he saw Thomas Wolfe's um, The Right Stuff and read it from cover to cover and realized this is what he wanted to do. So from that point on, he talks about having like the drive to try to get to be a pilot and so then he starts talking about how he had to get his grades up and become better at math and stuff like that yeah and it wasn't ever he wanted to be an astronaut he just wanted to fly and so a lot of his time is spent flying planes for the navy and then he talks a lot about that and I give it to my dad to read because they talk a lot about being on an aircraft carrier my dad spent 30 years in the navy on aircraft carriers so he liked that part of it a lot and he became like a test pilot as well and did a lot of flying that way. And then his brother applied for the NASA program and told Scott, you know, you should apply too. So he did. And then, <laughs> so if anyone ever wants to be an astronaut, you better become very familiar with doctors and be very comfortable having every inside and outside orifice of your body probed. Because he talks about having to go get um, a rather intimate colonoscopy with the doctor. <laughs> he said that he's standing there and the doctor's behind him and there's a screen and the doctor's talking to him. And all of a sudden he's like, and then it was very uncomfortable. And he's like, I'm watching this screen going, what is that? Where is that? And he's like, oh, that's me. <laughs> so... He's, he's very humorous in his talk and how he um, explains stuff, which I find refreshing because a lot of times some of the space books, they're very stiff in how they talk about what goes on. And, you know, he's very, he's very funny, I found. And then he talks like the book kind of tandems between his, t his time in space and then his life. So then you'll go back to him being in space. And he, he does account up where his Russian counterpart does a countdown. So they talk about what they do. And I think it gives a really good look into what they spend their time on because they have, they are very rigidly scheduled. And Scott is not a scientist, but they will send scientific projects up for them to work on. And so they have to Skype with the scientists on the ground and they will tell them, this is what I need you to do. This is what I need you to do next. So they are on like a book schedule from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed. 
And then they talk about, like he talks a lot about the oxygen level because it drives him nuts and how they have to spend a lot of time repairing the CO2 machines in the International Space Station. And that's one of his jobs. Yes. And they talk about, he talks about like finding random things all over the place. And, you know, I know that you're in almost zero gravity, so I know that you would lose things, but he talks about how he will clean out a locker and there are things that have been floating in there and they've been lost for, I think he took a picture of something that had been lost five years ago by someone. Cause I mean, you can't put anything down cause it's gonna, it's gonna disappear. So they talk a lot. He talks about love of Velcro a lot. And, um, the other thing I found fascinating was when he got home he said the biggest thing he enjoyed was jumping in his pool and actually feeling water. Because if you think about it, water will never actually yeah. touch your It will bubble on your skin, but it won't ever actually submerge in your skin. So he talks about showers, and that's like his dream is a shower. And I'm like, you know that those things happen, but at the same time, you're like, oh, my gosh. I don't know if I could do it in space because that's a long time to go without the shower or stuff like that. But he also talked about how, because I remember when this came out, how NASA said they were going to do a study of both Scott and Mark. Yeah, yeah. that sounds interesting. Yes, but the thing is, is that NASA could not ask to do this. Despite the fact that the astronauts are owned by NASA, they cannot demand you give them that kind of access so Scott actually had to be the one that suggested suggested it before NASA could say this is the perfect opportunity. And so they did because once Scott said it in an interview, then NASA could pounce and say, all right, let's do it. And that's what happened. So Scott was monitored in space and Mark was monitored on, on land. And there are they are finding fascinating changes in the two of them, even since Scott has come home how his body has reacted to that whole year. Yeah, this could be an ongoing study. Mm-hmm. Is different in height now? All astronauts will come back taller because their spines will um, elongate. elongate. So they will, but it's just depending on how long. But they're finding that the radiation that Scott has received in space is different, and it is changing some of his genetic coding a bit. So they are finding things that way that are different. So it, it's super cool. It is it is spooky and super cool because it. I'm surprised Big Bang Theory didn't take that up because of uh, the nutcase. How yeah. it goes. Yeah, you know, he in did. Short, he did. When he comes back, oh, he said, oh, he "I'm going to go get my driver's license because I'm three oh, inches okay. taller." I didn't yeah. realize. That. I just remember <laughs> I all the crap yep. that went on. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. hear that one. That's, yeah, that's neat. Yeah. So I recommend this book for everyone to read. I really enjoyed it. There's a lot of fun pictures in there. He takes he has a Twitter account, so he talks about like what he did. What's the home of the of the Kellys? Arizona. Arizona. Okay. Mark's in Arizona. Mark's in Arizona. Mm-hmm. No, they grew up in New York, in New oh. Jersey, um, but both of the Kellys now live in Arizona. Oh, I'm at where they grew oh up. they both grew up there, and his mom 
was a homemaker for a long time and then decided that she wanted to become a cop as well. Her, her, their dad was a cop and then she wanted to become a cop. So he talks a lot about how like he got his sense of like when you find something you want, the drive it takes because his dad like built her an obstacle course in the backyard so that she could pass her, you know, physicals and stuff. So, I mean, it's a really interesting story. Both of his parents, I think, are... They were hard alcoholics and they had, you know, some tumultuous times. But I found him just refreshing because some of, like I said, some of the astronaut books I have read are really dry. And he, you know, he'll swear and he doesn't like when things go wrong, but he's pretty even keeled through. I mean, you can tell he makes the perfect astronaut because while things will annoy him, they never like flare up the way some people do. And it's interesting because I think he flies so his is not purely I'm going as a scientist astronaut. He went as the pilot of the planes. And then when the United States shut their program down, going with Russia and all of that. And it sounds like astronauts have really high blood alcohol tolerance because they drink a lot. <laughs> but there's a lot in there, too, about the study, or at least as far as the study has gotten. Yes. Um, there isn't too much in there because this only takes place, like, it ends with him coming home. So anything that's gone on, if you go to the NASA website, they've got a whole bunch that they've put out or will put out. Yeah. So he has some of the longest time in space right now. Could he speak Russian? He could speak some Russian, but the international language for the International Space Station is English. Just like math, um, English is the international language for math. So even if you speak another language when you present a paper you present it in English same applies to science as well so how you feel about that is one thing but that is what they do but a lot of the astronauts since they spend a lot of time in Russia prior to launch know a good chunk of Russian but in the International Space Station, it's kind of like two sides and you've got the Russians over here and you've got everyone else over here I mean, it's not like an us versus them kind of situation. They don't see it that way. That's how the station is built. The Russians gave theirs and the Russians do their experiments, but they share food, they share time, and they talk a lot about like the resupplies. So like if you see any of those resupply ships that blow up, you can know there's an astronaut somewhere, somewhere in the International Space Station swearing because they will have missed their ice cream and their fresh food. Because after a while they get really stale and so and they talk about taste and how taste disappears from them a lot so stuff that's really fresh is really great because their sense is kind of dull but it's really interesting so I thought it was a really neat look at the space station what they do up there and how they live up there because if we're going to Mars we're gonna have to get used to it so. like the early 70s I guess the food companies they made those little sticks called space. They said that's actually what they took into mm -hmm. space. Was that accurate? That was supposedly. And they, I wondered, they did come away with lots of dehydrated yeah. foods. And, and they stuff, still but. do that. I know when the Italians finally were sending up their own astronauts, they spent a million and a half dollars to make an espresso machine that they could send with their astronauts because the Italians oh. were not drinking cruddy coffee. 
So I thought wow. it was gonna be pasta. No, <laughs> although that would be lovely too. So there is an espresso machine in the International Space Station that the Italians have built, and it's pretty good coffee apparently. I'd be the next one I have is Spaceman, and this is by Mike Manicino, or he goes by Mike Mass. If you've watched The Big Bang Theory, he is on it. He is the one that goes to the International Space Station with Howard. And this is another one of those charming stories of a guy who, he talks about how he grew up in New York. And when he was a kid, he loved space, but nobody else really in his circle, like his parents or his friends, were interested in space. So while he bored everyone to death with it for about a year, it kind of died down. And then he spent, you know, middle school and high school playing um, baseball and school. But he decided that he was going to become an engineer. And he then went to... As he said, he went to the wrong program to get to the right program because he applied to schools within his kind of world in New York. And when he was there, he met a professor that was coming through through MIT and told him, you know, you're in the wrong program. You need to come to MIT. So then he transfers to MIT and then moves over there. And then once he gets there, he kind of gets bit by the space bug. Mike never got to the International Space Station because he helped build it. He's one of those who helped build it and go up and deal with the satellites and Hubble. And he helped change the mirror on Hubble, which I couldn't imagine trying to do without, like, wetting your pants a bunch because that was a very expensive process. So his is fascinating because his takes place earlier than um, Scott's does. And I find a lot of it really interesting because he talks about the the dynamics of NASA through an engineer's perspective. And he has a doctorate. I don't know if you guys watch Big Bang, how they always make fun of Howard for not having a doctorate. He does have a doctorate in engineering. But I liked his as well, and there's fun pictures in his. I started reading it, and then my son was like, I want to read it. So he started picking it up, and I got him his own copy because he was commandeering mine all the time. So... But I really like the way Mike writes, and I really like the way Scott writes. They're, they're easy to read. They're fun to read. They talk a lot about the culture of NASA, but it's not, like, heavy. And it's definitely changed from the uh, Space Cowboys of Apollo 8. And so you guys can take this one because that well, one. Yeah, because when that program started, most astronauts could walk on water. I mean... I mean, well, they were asking a lot of them, too. Well, I mean, it's basically now, like, we're going to put you in a tin cup and light a bomb under you. Yeah, but they were controlled as, you know, as mm -hmm. what their well, behavior they were was. Marketed. They were marketed. And, mm -hmm. but, um, and they were the best of the best. They certainly did remarkable things. Also. Yeah, I mean, somebody came up to me and said, guess what, we haven't ever tried this before, but we're going to see if it yeah. works. You want to do it? I mean, I cannot believe how many of them like, sure, why not? But, I mean, they lost a lot of friends with all of those pre-Saturn flights. I mean, Apollo 8, Saturn 1, I mean, they lost a lot of people. But all the power to them, because I would not have gone I almost didn't bring this book. I've debated on it several times. It's called Headstrong, and it's 52 women in science and space and math. 
the reason I have debated on this book is that I am not in love with the way it is presented. There are phenomenal women in here, but I don't think that doing a screenshot blurb of these women is really giving them the deserve they they should get and so i would have rather seen the author do a series of books i mean yes and granted some of them probably don't have a lot like one of my favorites is a woman named um alice ball who became a um science professor in hawaii and helped find a better method for getting the medication that they were using for uh, leprosy patients into the leprosy patients because they were just like basically putting it under the skin and they said it was like a moving snail you could watch it travel up the skin and it was never dissipating into the body the way it should and she came up with a brilliant way to do it she was one of the first African Americans on the team and this is turn of the century, but she gives her a page and a half. And while she dies at a young age from accidentally ingesting um, hydrocarbon into her lungs, I mean, I'm like, you should give her more. Yeah. Like, she needs more. So, well, I don't, I like the idea of this book. I really am disheartened by its shortness in a lot of these women. From the start of it, I was super excited because she talks about how her, she sets up her criteria. It must be women that have already done their jobs and they've either passed away or have retired from their industry so that she can look at their career as a whole versus women that are still continuing in their career. Um, she was not going to do Madame Curie because Madame Curie is the touchstone whenever you talk about women in science. That's, the That's usually the only name people can come up with. And while she is a phenomenal individual, um, she is not the only one in math or science. So she was not going to do her. And I was like, all right, we're going to get some. And then I was disappointed when it was just like, boop, 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 boop these fast paced so it's a good book like it's almost like a good introduction if nobody knows anything but I read a lot of math and science books and have read a lot about these women so I felt like it cheated a lot of these women out of a better story than they were given one of my favorites is Helen Lamar I love her she's so brilliant uh, you guys can take it I mean like I said if you don't know I mean there's a lot of women in there but if you don't know much about them it's a good entrance. I just, I wish there was more. I didn't want to discourage people from reading it because it does have a lot of good women in there that I think it passed up a lot. I mean, look how long it has taken anyone to recognize the women who have been involved in NASA and helped get us off the ground. I mean, it's not like these women don't need recognition. I just, I wish there was maybe like several in this series and she did one on women in math or one on, you know, something else to give these women more than a this is what she is this is where she came from this is what she did moving on for me that style does not work um the next one i have is hot lights cold steel and again it's another just audio only so if you're not into listening to books this is one this is one i wouldn't recommend anyways so <laughs> it sounded really good but then it just fell apart he is a gentleman who goes to school for the John Hopkins Medical School. 
and then becomes an orthopedic surgeon. So the story starts out with him in his last year of residency working the night shift and a boy comes in who lost his foot in a tractor. And then they talk about what he as the surgeon has to decide what to do. And he has to make the painful decision of, well, I could reattach the foot. It is possible. But would that be the best thing to do for this kid? Because ultimately, in the end, they will probably have to take it off. And then it goes through his years in school and the cases he saw. My problem with this guy is that he is the shining gold star of an egocentric doctor at its finest. Love he, he, oh man, he's got an ego on him. And it I just he was an oozed. Was he an Michael I think so. Yes, he was See, the third like, man in. That's in, who I thought mm-hmm. was going to go into. Yeah. No, this man. No, no, it's not this man. But he just oozes his kind of arrogance through the whole book that I just can't stand. But he talks about, there was one interesting case study where he has this guy, a contractor, who came in and sliced off four of his fingers. And um, the guys he was working with were smart enough to save the fingers on ice. So they bring him in and they talk about how they're going to have to reattach him. But the thing is, is that the contractor is a smoker. And Mike, Michael tells him, you cannot ever smoke even a single cigarette. I'm like, well, that sounds a bit mm-hmm. extreme. But he goes on to explain that no matter what, a single cigarette will start to shrink those blood vessels and his fingers will fall off. And I'm like, whoa. And sure enough, he, I mean, he explains all of this to this contractor. If you want to keep your fingers, if you want to keep your livelihood, you can never smoke again. You would think that would be enough of a motivator to never pick up. Nope. He gets out of the hospital. That day he smokes a cigarette. Has to come back in. His fingers have turned black within two hours of leaving the hospital. And he loses all of them within the next two weeks. Did he die? He didn't die, but he lost all his fingers. I mean, he lost his livelihood. It's like an addiction, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's pretty extreme. Yeah. I mean, there's but something. It's not like an addiction. It is an addiction. Yeah. And it was a single cigarette. I mean, he smoked one, and there went his fingers. And I was just like, whoa. So, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> I should have warned you. Is this and nonfiction? It is nonfiction. Okay. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it's only available in audio. Um, I don't know if they just don't want to buy it in paperback form so and he is like I said he's very kind of condescending kind of I mean he's he's like the gold star of a doctor and they when they talk about like they do a rotation within like the research department of medicine he talks about how him and his friends just kind of lollygag and don't pay attention I'm like you do realize that those cool tools you use when you do surgery comes from these departments. And when they talk about like, you know, I was listening to an interesting podcast that was talking about how there's a lot of study going into when they put somebody under for surgery, how they're not measuring brainwave activity and they need to start doing that more frequently because everyone's tolerance is different. And so there's a lot of, like, sickness that comes from being put under. And the anesthesiologists are looking at, like, sensitivity. And can we find the perfect sensitivity so they don't drop you so low? So it takes you so long to come out of that medicine. And he just, I mean, 
that that's studies come in that and he's in john hopkins so i'm sure they got phenomenal studies going on but he talks about how they don't pay attention and i was just driving me nuts so i like some of the case studies he did like the one about the fingers that was pretty interesting but it's kind of eh. if you got time and are kind of bored you could listen to it but if you have a very weak stomach do not read this book under any circumstance don't read it while you eat there is a lot of bodily fluids in it so the butchering art takes place in victorian england and it talks about a man named lester who became part of the listerine and the movement to prove that microbes actually do affect us now we're starting at the time when the best thing was the surgeries with a saw and the ability to cut an arm off in 20 seconds. So, like I said, there's a lot of stuff in here. So, if you're uncomfortable, please, please, please don't read it. But it's fascinating. So, I love every minute of it. But they talk about how they don't wear gloves. Like, things that today are, we're so like, well, duh, of course you wear gloves. And, of course, you wash your hands. And they talk about the, like, aprons that they would put on that were just, like, stiff. Because they were had been passed down from surgeon to surgeon. And I'm like, oh. But the story goes through the evolution of medicine from that time to what they were looking at under microscopes and the cleanliness that was needed to kind of bring hospitals and people in line. And what I found fascinating was that, like, people refused to go to hospitals. Hospitals were the kiss of death. So if you didn't have to, you would stay out of them. No matter, I mean, rich people would have doctors come to them, but even the poor would avoid them at all costs. And so it was like, you were dying if you were going there. And they talk about how there was a guy who had mushrooms growing in his bed. And he thought that was pretty normal for the hospital. So, yeah. It's, it's a fascinating look at the medical science that we've come from. And it talks a lot about Listerine and how he was using microscopes to prove that there was things in the blood and the pus and all of these things that we needed to look at and doctors needed to... Um, taking it seriously and it was quite a battle for him to even get doctors to wash their hands because they just you know wash your hands you don't have time for this you know so it's a fascinating book I also recommend reading it with quackery at the same time because this well this is not probably a book you want to read like full through although you can because that's what I'm doing it talks a lot about the medicines they used, so they talk about opioids, they talk about gold, they talk about phosphorus, they talk about all the things they used at some point, where they were used, how they were used. They talk about the humors, which was very big in Victorian times. You had the blood, the biles, and how you had to keep those all even. So I really liked reading these together. Because I found that, you know, they would mention something about, like, the use of gold in here. And I could look it up in here. And they talk about bloodletting and it's and the history of it and why they thought it was great. So these are great books to read in together. Or you can read them individually. But if you have a weak stomach, I don't recommend either one of them. Because they are not shy on details. So. 
They talk about leeches in here and how they used to put... Leeches are actually phenomenally well used today because they have a lot of anticoagulant yeah. properties and they use a lot of that. I mean, they were just kind of off the mark with attaching them to people, but they weren't totally off the mark with offering the, you know, the ability. I always make the joke because I get bruises all the time that I need to keep a batch of leeches in the house just to put one on the bruise to get rid of it, but... The author of Butchering is a doctor, and she has her own Twitter feed, and she puts a warning on there that it is not for the weak of heart. She talks a lot. I mean, she has some very gruesome pictures on her Twitter feed. So if you enjoy medical history, and she is one to follow. I don't have Twitter, so but I heard her talking. That's how I got interested in this book. I heard her talking about this book and her Twitter feed. So this one you can have, The Butchering Art. There's a list a mile long, so you'll have to get on it. This is my copy. You can't have it. Every time I hear people talk about, like, oh, we don't know how to do this in science or we should be this further. I always want to say, like, read these books. Look how far we've come from. We don't wash our hands. We, you know, things like that. Um, I did like the distinction in the butchering art. They talk about the difference between doctors and surgeons. Doctors were thought to be, you know, sophisticated. They came from the gentry. They're the ones that entered the houses. The surgeons were kind of the tradesmen of the field. And they would talk about... Yes, pretty much. And they would talk about how they'd have surgery day. And so they'd line up all the people that needed stuff, and then they'd just all the way through them. And one of the stories that I found, like, that I wanted to read it was they were talking to this little boy who had to have his leg off. And he asked the, doc he asked the surgeon, is it going to hurt? And the guy goes, oh, no, it won't hurt that much. It's like pulling a tooth. I'm like, oh, no, it's not. But, you know, that's the way they would describe because they didn't really get the comprehension of pain either. And it was just like, well, a couple whacks and you'll be out the door. So it's a very fascinating book. I recommend it. But like I said, there's a very long list on it. So you'll have to fight for your own. Um, I'm going to skip down and do the illustrious death, which, again, I'm sorry to say is only an audio. It is about the Napoleonic army entering Russia. And how there is enough information or there's, a, there's theories coming out that Napoleon did not lose the Russian war because he tried to take Russia on during the winter, but because his army was being invaded by pathogens, the most being um, the scarlet fever and typhus, and how they were ravaging his armies before they even got to did in World War yes I. yes and so this was a fascinating look at like how napoleon this is the height of the napoleon regime he has some of the best fighters in the world and how they it's fascinating because he talks about how the people that he conquered like the poles would then send troops to him to fight for him and you would think that would never work anywhere else I mean but they would fight to the death for Napoleon but they talk about how when he entered Russia the size of his army and when he exited Russia or retreated from Russia the size of his army and they go through how it started to just rip apart his army and now Napoleon was never given true facts about the size of his army because his generals just did not want to have to admit to him they were going to have to return and come back later. So it's a really interesting look at how history and um, disease have played an inter integral part with each other. And I mean, 
I always hear the adage, well, Napoleon lost because he entered Russia in the winter. Well, no, he didn't. He entered in the spring and fought until the winter, and he had to return because he lost. Uh, the numbers range from 200,000 to 500,000 troops, not due to fighting, but because of the disease that was running through. The reader is a bit apocryphal in the way he talks so you have to get over that a little bit because he's always like and then the dead rose you know it's a little it's a little distracting but it's a very good story it's um i found it fascinating because it wasn't i mean it should be obvious well yes you get a large group of individuals together you get a flu running through or you get typhus and it's really going to pull pull anything apart so I found it fascinating. It was an awesome book. Um, that takes me to the next one, which is The Pale Writer. And I am not finished with this one because my phone had a hiccup and I lost the last four parts, so I'm not done with it yet. But this is about the Spanish epidemic of 1918-1919. And this one is told from how it affected not the United States, not Britain, but the rest of the country, the rest of the planet where the epidemic was its greatest because they give the numbers and the United States, Great Britain, uh, Germany, and even Spain did not suffer as many losses to the epidemic as they did to casualties of the First World War. But other parts like Indochina, um, Africa suffered huge horrendous swaths of their um, populations being wiped out because of this. So... The first part talks about epidemics and where they come from and how they get into the system, like how they get into being part of, you know, the flu or how they've come about. And then the next four parts are about the actual epidemic, where it started and stuff like that. What I found fascinating is the reason why it's called the Spanish flu is because the United States and Britain would not acknowledge that there was anything epidemic about it so it was only when the king of spain got what they called the flu that they then started calling it the spanish flu because then they could kind of euphemistically talk about it in the papers without it being like oh you know everyone in germany and the united states has it it's interesting the united states had a better clamp on this than britain did and so you can see the numbers between the two why the united states was never affected by this as much as um, great britain was but it's a fascinating book on an epidemic that i think really gets overshadowed because it's right at the end of world war one and a lot of people kind of skip over it but i mean it took huge amounts of lives well in the united states also issued a quarantine so when soldiers were coming back, a lot of them could not pass if they were sick. And there's a lot of, like, hospitals on the coast or were set up for that. And the United States created edicts. There was no dance halls. There was no movies. Anywhere that, like, mass, yeah, massive congregations of people was outlawed until they could get a hold on what was going on, which is a lot better than a lot of other countries were doing a lot of them either didn't want to admit anything was going on or didn't feel that this was necessary so i mean that's why the united states did not suffer the same numbers but like i said i i've fortunately only got through part four and i'm waiting for my phone to write itself so i can get the other but it's really good i'm really enjoying it okay i'll blow through these last two really quick the 
Map Thief led into me reading The Man Who Loved Books. The Map Thief is about a man whose last name is Smiley, which cracked me up, um, who stole maps from public libraries in 2010. It's relatively recent. He stole millions of dollars worth of um, rare maps. And while I hate to admit this, when it came time to actually figure out what he had stolen, either the libraries clamped up and would not admit that they did not have the security they needed to or the procedures in place to catalog their library books, or they just would not share it because they didn't want to look like fools for getting taken. So a lot of this book, it, it talks about Smiley and his acquisitions and the maps he, and a lot of them were... Um, early American, so right when John Smith was here, so really early American maps. Um, he then talks, they talk about his theft, they talk about him being convicted, they talk about what he might have stolen, and then the last section of the book is talking about how libraries need to get their acts together. And I hate to admit it, but they really do. So um, it was painful to read, but I have to admit my fellow librarians and I, we need to get a little better at some of this stuff, especially since libraries seem to be the gatekeepers, a lot of this older stuff that becomes, once it goes into private collections, become lost. So a lot of libraries have books that are never seen anywhere else. Yes, and apparently he's not the only one. There's quite a few that have struck libraries. We Libraries seem to be a treasure trove of things and they don't always know what they have the the last one is the man who loved books and actually um i read the man who loves books first because they referenced the map thief in that book so that's what made me read the map thief but this is about a man who stole collector books through a rather clever scheme of like stealing credit cards this was prior list so this would have been like when you would carbon copy a credit card and he used to work for Saks in um, Los Angeles. So he would take all those card numbers that he got, and but he would only take them from very wealthy clients so that they wouldn't actually raise a red flag if they saw a $1,500 book on the account because, you know, they buy expensive things. But then he would go to pay phones and call book dealers and then have them mail the book to like a hotel, which he would then pay a cab driver to go pick up. He was very clever in his theft. Sadly, the book dealers are much more organized than the librarians because when they started getting um, shafted, they created a website where all of them would go to say, this is what happened to me. And then they started to piece together that it was one man. The gentleman was trying to create the 100 best list from the National Library Association's list of 100 best books, but he wanted first editions of all of them. So it was the need to collect these books that drove him to do it. So it's all about his theft. It's all, I mean, the author actually meets him because he's on probation several times, but he's still stealing all the time. So he's... A rather charming individual, which you'd kind of have to be to be this kind of con artist. It's a, it's an interesting look at you know things that I would never think people would get obsessed with, but you know it is it is something people get obsessed with. So, and so I recommend both of them. They're both a really interesting read, especially for people who love books. And so that's all I got. But yeah. <laughs>
We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcast by searching for Lincoln City Libraries podcasts on Facebook.